All right, here we go. <laughs> now we're going. Uh, we all, thanks for being here. If you're here, it means that uh, you did not have a ticket to the weight game and you're not afraid of snow. So there's like a little bit of an anti-sports survivalist kind of thing going on tonight. I like that. <laughs> all right, jump it in. Um, I heard a story recently of a woman, and she's a professional writer online. Uh, she writes for some really well-known blogs and online magazines, and she just casually threw out the story that she has like a half million Twitter followers, which I have like four, and one's my mom. And uh, <laughs> doesn't count. And uh, she talked about how it's unfortunate, but in her line of work, you just kind of get trolls, like people who will follow you for no other reason than just to say really, really mean, terrible things to you. And usually things that you would never say to someone in real life because it's like the internet. Like they feel comfortable saying just terrible things. And she talked about in the story that the worst troll she ever, ever, ever had came right on the heels of her dad's death from cancer. And she'd been really close to her dad. He'd passed away from cancer after a really long battle. And just a few months after he died... She was on Twitter one day and on pops uh, an avatar that's the face of her dad. And someone had found out who he was, had taken his picture, and started trolling her from her father. And saying things like, you are terrible, I'm so disappointed in you, you're fat, I hate you. Like, terrible, awful things. And she knew that, obviously, this is not my dad. And these are not things that my dad would ever say to me or ever thought, or ever experienced in his heart. But there was something about just how mean this was that just got under her skin, and it got worse and worse and worse, until finally it broke the troll. It was so mean that one day she sat on her computer, she got an email from the guy who'd been trolling her, and he just apologized profusely. Like saying over and over again how sorry he was, he shut down the Twitter account, everything. And so she's talking about the story, and she brings the guy on. And she's interviewing him, and he is so profusely apologetic, and he knows he's done this heinous thing to her, and he knows he's hurt her, and she is this strong, intelligent, powerful woman. She's in like the seat of power. like She's grilling the person that's been accusing her and saying these terrible things at her on the Internet. And yet, even though she has all these things going for her, you can hear in her voice how devastated she is. That this guy has said things that has just gotten under her skin and she is on the verge of tears. You know, why is that? Because words, and especially certain people's words, have the power to either accuse us or excuse us. Words have power in our lives. Last week we talked about stories. And if there's anything that's a, a founding kind of foundational block of a story, it's the words that are in that story. I mean, think about your Instagram account when you post a selfie and kind of what the pictures you're looking for. Like, you're beautiful, you're wonderful, uh, emoji of, like, like smiley face with, like, hearts in its eyes. Like, you're scrolling through that. Like, you would get those things and be like, all right, this is good, I like this, this is nice. What if, like, at the very bottom of that, someone, like, trolled you and said, you're disgusting, no one likes you. Like, that would be the Instagram equivalent of a declaration of nuclear war, wouldn't it? Like, boom, mushroom cloud, I'm coming for you. (laughs) Why? Because words have power. The right words at the right place and the right time have real power to get under our skin. What if, go back to Instagram here, what if that last comment was not something terrible, but it was something like your best friend wrote, 
Like, I think you are the most intelligent, kindest, most wonderful person I've ever met. I think you're beautiful inside and out. And it is a huge pleasure of mine to know you. Like, no comment, no reason, just leaving it here. Like, you could live on that for like a week, couldn't you? Like, that would just, you'd be able to go forever on that. Why? Because words have the power to accuse us or to excuse us, to set us free. And some people have more power in our lives and other people have less. And so tonight, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about what it means that Jesus is our priest. Because that's not something we think about a lot. But what does it mean that he's our priest? That he has words for us from God. And he has words from God to us. Have you ever thought about his words and their power to either excuse or accuse us? So tonight, I want to talk about two things. And that's this. I want to talk about the qualifications of Jesus' priesthood. I want to talk about the work of his words. The qualifications of his words and his priesthood and the work of those words. So let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word has the power to make us who we are in you. Thank you that you love us, that you sent your word to us in your son, or that he set us free. I pray that his freedom, his joy, his love, his patience, and his kindness would be with us tonight, binding us together and binding us to you. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so what are the qualifications for Jesus' priesthood? What are the qualifications? Look here where it says that he was tempted in every way. He's tempted in every way. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew says that Jesus gets baptized. It's the start of the Gospel. He gets baptized. He's driven out into the desert. He eats nothing for 40 days, 40 nights. He's absolutely famished. He's in a weak state. And then what happens? The devil comes to him, and he tempts him three times. He says, turn stones into bread if you're so hungry. Throw yourself off this cliff, and you know your father won't let you hurt you. Won't let you hurt yourself. And just worship me, and I'll give you whatever you want. You don't have to suffer. There doesn't have to be a cross. And Jesus is tempted, and he turns all those things down. And people have gone round and round debating what would have happened if Jesus had sinned, or if he could have sinned. That's not the point of this story. The point of this story is this. Do any of those temptations sound familiar? If you're so hungry, just make the bread. Rely on yourself. Throw yourself down. Do whatever you want. For you, there are no consequences. You don't, have to do, you don't have to suffer to do something great in the world. Just compromise yourself so that outwardly you look good to everyone around you, but inwardly you know that you're a fraud. I think that the temptation to live a self-sufficient, consequence-free life where you compromise yourself to leapfrog ahead and achieve whatever personal goals you've set for yourself, I think that is the temptation for this time of, your, of life. I think that's the temptation. I'm fine on my own. I don't need help. I can do what I want. College is four years of get out of jail free. If I just cheat a few times to boost my GPA so I can get into this program, it will be fine. And really it might. You might get in and nobody might ever find out, but what does that do to the integrity of your soul? Any one of those temptations on its own, I think is strong enough to take us down. But when you wrap all three together, it makes for a very powerful cocktail. I know this thing that I'm about to do. When I type this into this search engine, when I take one more drink, when I walk into this dark room with him and we watch a movie by ourselves, is spiritually speaking like putting my hand into a blender. And later I'm going to be so mad at myself, I'm going to face palm over how dumb this was. But there's just something in me that's drawn to that anyway. And into that reality, what does the writer of Hebrews say to people like us? That Jesus understands every inch of our temptation. 
He understands. You realize that Jesus sees the way that our hearts are drawn to those things. And because he's a man, he can sympathize and say, I felt that way too. I've wanted that same sort of thing too. Because he was tempted. And at the same time, because he's God, he didn't give in to that temptation. And when you put those two things together, what do you get? Man who knows temptation, but God who's not given into it. Someone who can help you. All the compassion, all the sympathy, all the mercy of someone who's been right where you are. And at the same time, all the strength, all the divine wisdom, all the power to really help you fight those things. You know, the sociologist Brene Brown says that the two most comforting words in the English language are what? Me too. I understand that as a person who got hungry and sad and lonely and who lived in a fallen world with fallen people and had just as many temptations as you do, Jesus understands. Was he ever attracted to someone and he like was not married and knew he wasn't going to get married anytime soon? Surely he must have been. He was a teenage boy with all the things that happen with teenage boys, right? Did he ever act on that temptation, though? No. He was always a holy God. As a man, he gets it. And as God, he can marshal the resources to help. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? Who does he help? Look at verse 16 here. Who does he help? For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He doesn't come for those people who've got it together. Do you know what Abraham was? He's someone that was worshiping idols in the desert. God approaches him and says, Abraham, for no reason in you, I'm going to bless the entire world through your offspring. All you have to do is believe me and have a kid, and I will bless the world. And Abraham says, that sounds pretty good to me. Let's do this. And so what does he do? He moves to Egypt. Pharaoh takes interest in his beautiful wife, Sarah. And Abraham gives, him to, gives her to Pharaoh. Not an all-star move. You need an offspring, you give your wife to someone else. That's not good. <laughs> Later, he gets his wife back. They're struggling to conceive. What does he do? He has a baby with her servant. Like, also not a good move. None of, yeah, that's right. None of these things go well for him. It all has terrible effects on his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. Jesus came to help people who are like Abraham. People who worship idols, like us. People who have not spoken up when they should have because they were afraid and said bad consequences for people they love. People who tried to take things in their own hands and when they did it, blew up in their faces. Like Those are people like us, right? So how does he help? How does he help? Look at verse 14. Through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Look, y'all, I don't know what you think about the devil. To modern people, that can sound very Halloween-ish. Like a guy with a cape dressed in red with too much product in his beard. The Bible does not see the devil that way. It doesn't. The devil in the Bible is a very real, very ancient, extraordinarily cunning, powerful, malevolent, evil intelligence that is opposed to God and to his people. Like think Sauron, like that big glowing eye in the Lord of the Rings, times a bajillion. Like that's the devil. But what does it mean here that the devil has the power of of death. It doesn't mean that he can kill whoever he wants to kill. He never has that power. But it means that he could use death as a way to get pe people to do what he wanted. He could accuse them 
with judgment. What's another name for the devil? Satan. Satan. It's the Hebrew for accuser, shatan. That he could stand and he could accuse God's people and say, you need to destroy them. For what they've done, they deserve to die. And until Christ came and died for his people, he was right. God's people had sinned, and until the penalty of that sin was dealt with, the devil had a certain power to charge at them. That everyone has broken God's law, and the penalty for that is death. And there was a power that he held, but when Jesus dies for the sins of those people, the devil loses that power. I mean, think about the cross. That Jesus is condemned by the powers of Rome, he's condemned by the powers of the Jewish authorities. Evil is done against him, even though he's innocent. Only evil can condemn an evil man, right? Or an innocent man. But lurking behind those institutions in a way that we totally understand was the devil. But it's through Jesus' condemnation and the death that results from it that Jesus defeats the power of evil. That in his wisdom, he disarms evil by allowing evil to happen to him. Without that condemnation, the devil can't accuse. That doesn't mean that we never experience condemnation in ourselves, right? Like, Remember those things that you did during your time abroad? Like the wild nights, the partying, that sense of freedom you have, that having to deal with people's expectations? You know this isn't a place for you anymore. Like We feel and hear things like that all the time. But on God's end, what happens with those accusations? They have zero power. You are bulletproof. Where the devil cannot accuse, you are free to go. But on our end, what power do they have? Have you ever thought about what God is thinking about you? Have you ever thought about that? Like when you really mess up and you really sin, what is the dialogue between God the Father and God the Son? Is it something like, he did it again? I know. It's not like we thought he was going to get it right this time. Well, are you going to forgive him? Okay, okay, I'll forgive him. But you, okay, you say you forgive him, cool. Because we really need to like keep up this illusion that God is nice. Like, is the conversation there essentially, this person is a disappointment and they will never measure up? We may not, may not be able to articulate that clearly, but that is where a lot of us live a lot of the time. And y'all, those are lies from hell. And the truth is, is if you think that's the, how the conversation between the Father and the Son goes about you, then I can imagine that it would be hard for you to see God as good. And why would you want to bring someone to this place where you think you're just going to emotionally get beat up? But what does the Bible actually have to say? What does the Bible say the the conversation is? John, one of Jesus' disciples, the guy who knew him really well, spent a ton of time with him, is writing in a letter to a church, and he says, Little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin, but if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Law school applicants, what is the language there of advocate? It's a courtroom, right? That Jesus is like in a courtroom for you. And he's not there pleading for the personal righteousness of his clients. That Our guilt is taken for granted, which is why we need an advocate. We need to go between. We need someone that can say good words on our behalf. But as someone who shares in our nature, who faces our temptations, he is able to identify with us. And at the same time, he's able to stand in that court as someone who's known to have the highest respect for that law. He's died to finish it. And he makes his case before a father who is not reluctant to forgive you, 
but who delights to pardon and bless. Who, in fact, sent this very person, this Jesus, so that he could pardon and bless you as his child. And so that that he could do that based on what he has done, not on what we have done. So we can't mess it up. And so their conversation is not, oh, I can't believe they did it again. There's no reluctance. Rather, he is a priest that's merciful and faithful, and their conversation must go. And like, never been there, but it must go something like this. You know, he's done it again. We take no pleasure in that. But you know that you'd be unjust to condemn him. Remember that all of his sin has already fallen on me, and he now possesses my right standing with you. Well, I'm glad you're happy about that. You loved him enough to send me to die for him. I know. I really love him too. I have a lot of hope for him. I think he's going to make it. He is doing that for people like us all the time. Think about how that changes what your sense of what the Christian life is about. You see, most of us, I think, have this idealized version of ourselves. And that ideal person only really exists in our heads. Like, ideally, you would act and talk a certain way. Ideally, you would deal with the opposite sex in a certain way. to be a lot smoother. Uh, you wouldn't struggle with X and you'd be like crushing it on Y, right? Like there's this ideal person that lives in your imagination. And usually we tack some sort of spiritual component to that. Like you are always trying to get to that person. All right, how many of y'all have had this experience where you've had someone make an appeal to you about the gospel and the general message is, you know, you need to get right with God. Pray a prayer, come forward, whatever. And then you did it. And you got it thinking, all right, I'm not doing what I need to be doing. I need to quit fooling around on the weekend, cussing, being so selfish. And then we do what? We create this ideal mental image, right? Of what our spiritual life is supposed to look like. Here's God's standard. I need to work my way up that. Let's get to work. And as you do this, the Christian life becomes kind of like climbing this ladder, this ideal self. That this is the version of you who doesn't feel guilty for what they're doing, and who's actually meeting God's standard. And for a lot of us, life becomes this kind of roller coaster of wrongs and rights, wrongs and rights, where you live in various times in your life. And let's say that you leave that service, and you say to yourself, all right, I'm going to read the Bible every day. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. I want to read the Bible every day too. But after a few months, you kind of go a week and you forget And then you rebound back for a while because you did some volunteer work, right? So you're back on top. But you fall again because of that uh, wild weekend with your girlfriend. And think about what the kind of guiding assumption of your life is in that. That when I do what I'm supposed to do, when I'm up here, God likes me. But when I don't do what I'm supposed to do when I'm down here, God is pretty disappointed with me. And our relationship is in jeopardy. And y'all, this can be a powerful motivation for you. Because as long as you think I'm doing what I need to do, then everything will be okay. Like, I can use guilt to make me do the things I need to do. And, you know, if you know yourself well, you know this is not going to work. Like, guilt and motivation in the long term never motivate anyone for long, especially not you. I mean, especially not me, too. (laughs) Marriage and family relationships, appropriately enough, demonstrate this, I think. Like, how many of us just feel like negatively impacted by our parents' constant use of guilt to get us to do what they want us to do. Like, who grew up with Elf on a Shelf, right? Like, that is a bad idea. <laughs> like, there's this creepy little elf that lives in your house and he's guilting you into being good so that you get presents. Like, that's not good, y'all. Now, all right, let's get back to the spiritual stuff. <laughs> that's my tangent for Christmas. Uh, 
let some time pass. It doesn't have to be very long. If you live underneath this kind of guiding principle for long, there's a certain amount of time where one or two things usually happen. Either you burn out, you're going to burn out, or you're going to become really self-righteous. If you burn out, it's because you have had enough of the up and down roller coaster. Up and down, up and down. I'm, and you decide, I'm just going to get off this thing and finally be myself and go wild and do me. I just need to do this. And y'all, for pastors like me, these people are the easiest people to talk with. I mean, really, basically because they've at least been honest enough to say, I quit, right? The problem is that talk is all they want to do. You know, one of sin's most frightening effects is that it hardens your heart. And very often, I can kind of talk with you about the Bible, I can pray with you, I can hear you out, but you're not going to respond. Your heart is hard because you are never, you think to yourself, ever for any reason going to get back on that roller coaster. I feel guilty, I don't feel guilty enough, I feel guilty, I don't feel guilty enough. You are done with that ride. The other option for someone who lives on that roller coaster is self-righteousness. And there are people who get pretty good at this game, y'all. Like, think about this. They have their quiet times faithfully. They go to all the best Bible studies, don't hang out with the bad people, whoever the bad people are, people who don't drink, people who sleep around, people who quit the roller coaster. And God likes me because I do those things. But then we sit down and we talk, and I can ask, how are you doing spiritually? And usually I get some sort of answer like, well, I, I made a resolution this New Year's to read my Bible every day. And you know what? It has been such a blessing. And, y'all, there is nothing wrong with reading the Bible every day. Like, may we all make that same sort of resolution and keep it. But the answer to the question of how are you doing spiritually, if that is, I'm reading the Bible, like, that is so wrong. (laughs) Because the New Testament measures spirituality by one measure and one measure only. Can you guess what it is? How much do you love the Lord Jesus? Jesus asked by the Pharisees outright in Matthew 22, what is the greatest commandment? How do I know if I'm doing you know, pretty well spiritually? Jesus says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And I mean love him with the same affection that a woman loves her husband or that a husband loves his wife. The kind of love that's expressed in the Song of Solomon. The only evidence for true Christians is do they love Jesus? Because what we do ought to result merely from loving Jesus, not the other way around. So do I love Jesus? Is He the focus of my spirituality? Are His words on my behalf to the Father, are they what make my heart sing? Or is everything that I'm doing spiritually just another way for me to get God on my side? Y'all, how sad it is that so many of us work and work to get something that we already have. God's love and approval, His sympathy and His help. And you will never be able to rest and give up the struggle to become that ideal person until you can rest and believe that God's words about you are not mean or harsh or disappointed, that they are kind and sympathetic, that Jesus stands ready not to help the angels who've got their stuff together, but people like us, the frail children of Abraham, And I want to ask, what if Jesus' work in your life was to kill that ideal image of yourself and to kill it so thoroughly that you could get off that roller coaster? I'm bad. I'm good. I'm crazy. Now I'm going to church. Like, what if you just got off that and that image was dead and you could just be with Jesus and rest? What if that was His work in your life? What if 
He gave you the thing that you most need. Not the person that you conjure up inside of yourself, but the person that He made you to be, which is someone who loves Him. What if that was one of the central parts of His work? You know, if all things exist through Him, they exist because of His say-so. And if He says that you are clean, Christian, you are clean. You see, there's this alien outside righteousness that old theologians used to love to talk about, which means not that the world is broken and so I've got to get my act together and fix myself, as though fixing ourselves has ever worked for anyone, but that I am broken with the world and Jesus comes from outside and speaks healing and wholeness back into my soul. That He frees you to be someone who prays and works, and has really fun snow days, and makes friends, not under this rain cloud of guilt and condemnation, but out of his love. See, our tendency is to say, all right, in order for me to be spiritually mature, I need to lead something, I need to stop doing X, I need to add this discipline into my routine. I'm not trying to shut any of those things down. There are wonderful things, and we need people to do those things. But do you see what has to be the fuel of our maturity? Jesus' words of love for you to the Father. And Jesus' words of love from the Father to you. That has to fuel your spirituality. Right now, in this moment, is that the thing that defines your life? Not your gender, not your race, not your class, not your sexuality. But Jesus' love for you, a sinner... That his words tell you who you are. Is that what defines you? Because y'all, there's a way in which we can be super familiar with this stuff, but not actually know it. Are you living off the fumes of the things that you learned about Jesus a long time ago? Are you living off the fumes of what some sort of felt experience that you had with Jesus a long time ago? Because you know, you can feel like you know something just because you're in proximity to it, but you don't actually know that thing. Who is God? What does he think of you? Who is Jesus? What does he say about you? What does he say? What does he pray? What does he do on your behalf? Have you listened to his words ever? Have you listened to him lately? No, this is not a command to you. It is not a command. It is only an appeal. But what if between now and next week, you read Paul's letter to the Colossians? And you read what Jesus had done, that he nailed the powers and principalities to the cross. And now because of his work, you can take off your old self and you can put on Jesus. And you can live out of that freedom. You can see his love in his word. Y'all, my hope for RUF is not that we would be kind of youth group 2.0 or that we're a bunch of people who kind of flagellate ourselves throughout campus and just beat ourselves up emotionally over how bad we are. But my hope for RUF is that we be a community of people who are marked by Jesus' words of love for us to the Father. That He loves you. He is after you. He speaks and sings good things over His people. That He is your priest and He is merciful and faithful to sinners and He will help you at all times, in all places, in whatever circumstance. He is our help. So I'll end with this. Leonardo DiCaprio has been in the news a lot lately for his newest movie, Ravenous. I don't know if you... Or, no, Revenant. Revenant. <laughs> that was a different Western movie about 10 years ago. I had a friend of mine tell me, 
You can you should feel comfortable taking Katie to see Revenant if you think she'd be okay with watching you skin a deer. I'm not okay with me skinning a deer, <laughs> so I'm not going to see it <laughs> until it comes out on DVD. Uh, <laughs> but about ten years ago, DiCaprio had a movie called Blood Diamond, and it was about conflict diamonds in Africa and all the pain and the suffering that they're tied to. And central to the movie is this relationship between an African man named Solomon and his son Dia. And early in the movie, Dia is kidnapped by a rebel army and he's forced to become a child soldier. He has terrible things, horrible things that warp him, that warp his sense of self and who he is. And his father, Solomon, throughout the movie, is just searching for him the whole time. Dia, Dia, where are you, Dia? Where is my Dia? And finally, in the movie, Solomon finds Dia in the jungle. But Dia's done terrible things, and they've warped him. He's believed all these lies about himself, all these awful words that his captors have spoken to him. And he finds himself holding a gun at his father, pointing at him, ready to shoot. And Solomon, his father, comes in with tears streaming down his face. And he says this, he says, Dia, what are you doing? Dia, look at me, look at me. What are you doing? You are Dia Vindi of the proud Mindy tribe. You are a good boy. This passage really hit me a lot this week. Who loves soccer and school. And your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire. And the cows wait for you. And they made you do bad things. But you are not a bad boy. I'm your father who loves you. And you'll come And you'll come home with me. And you'll be my son again. Do you know that that's God's appeal to you in Christ? Come home with me. Be my son. Be my daughter. That his words have the power to make us new. For good or evil, words have the power to transform. Do you know that? That if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. That he is for you. That he prays for you. That he loves you and sings over you. That is my offer to you. And as always, it's an invitation. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you love us. That you're with us and for us. God, that you give us all things through your son Jesus. That he says good words over us. That he is for his people. That he has the ability to help us in whatever situation we find ourselves. Lord, would you be with us? Would you help us to believe those words, wherever we're coming from? Or if we don't know you, if we're on some sort of terrible roller coaster of guilt and shame of pride and arrogance, would you help us to get off that? Would you humble us and give us the love of your Son and his word? In his name we pray, amen.